Patient comes in with chest pain, back pain, maybe some abdominal pain. What's the differential that you're thinking about? Most likely it's musculoskeletal, inflammatory, but when I hear chest pain, belly pain, and back pain, I, I've got to think about dissection and I'm going to lose sleep if I don't check for dissection on those patients. Yeah, dissection is one of those things that keeps all of us up at night thinking about it. But luckily today we have Dr. George Willis, who's going to be talking to us about aortic dissection. And this was a phenomenal talk taken from the ResusX Reset Conference this last October. Let's listen in. We're going to start off with a case. So you're working in the emergency department and a patient comes in. He's a 62-year-old male. He has a past medical history of high blood pressure, coronary artery disease. And he comes in with a chief complaint of chest pain and abdominal pain. So he looks a little uncomfortable. He doesn't look like your usual patient who may come in with a little bit of chest pain and abdominal pain. He actually looks relatively ill. We all know the donut of truth is going to happen. And the thing that we're most concerned about in this patient who comes in with chest pain and abdominal pain, the classic pain above and below the diaphragm is GERD. He has reflux. <laughs> you think, but it's from recess sex. So there's probably a little more. Let's listen in. Chest pain and abdominal pain, the classic pain above and below the diaphragm is aortic dissection. We get that CT scan and it looks like this, dissection. Of course, you're slapping your colleague a high five saying, yep, I made this diagnosis, I got this. But then all of a sudden, the patient starts to go south. His blood pressure starts to tank, he's looking a little bit more ill, and things are not going in the way that you're thinking that they were supposed to go. You started all the appropriate medications, but now his blood pressure's lower, you call the, the surgeon and the surgeon's look, I'm really busy. I know you have to get this patient to the operating room, but unfortunately I can't get there in time. Steve, just talking about type A dissections, I wanna know the types of medications you're hanging, the things that you're doing, who you're calling. Give me the step-by-step. -step. Absolutely. Medications, before this patient becomes hypotensive, my first priority is lowering that heart rate and I'm doing that with ESMA. And I'm getting pretty aggressive with the ESMA law, trying to get that heart rate less than 60. And then after the Esmolol, I like Narcartapine to go ahead and after I get the heart rate down, go ahead and start getting the blood pressure down. Always want heart rate control first. If I start the Narcartapine, that might actually drive up the heart rate. So I'm an Esmolol first and then Narcartapine kind of guy when their blood pressure is normal or high. Again, getting that heart rate as low as I can, getting that blood pressure as low as I can. And I'm not delaying calling my surgeon. That's as I'm getting someone else to order meds for me. I'm getting my cardiothoracic surgeon paged and trying to get definitive management of this taken care of. Fantastic. Let's get back to George. What do we do in this scenario with this patient who comes in with a dissection? We've done the hard part. Now we have to manage them appropriately. So we all know that when we're making the diagnosis of aortic dissection, the first and most important thing is to think about it. A lot of times, this is actually the hardest part. We see a lot of patients who come in with chest pain, some people come in with back pain, people who come in with abdominal pain, and a lot of times we're looking for some other pathology because it's much more frequently encountered in the emergency department. Steve, I remember when I was a first-year resident, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed about being in residency, reading that missing a dissection is the standard of care. And even though I haven't seen a dissection yet, I was like, this is going to be a really long career. It's tough, Amy. I've seen some insane presentations that ended up with dissection. Little twinge in the chest that got better. Classic symptoms for GERD, other things. I'd say about half the dissections I found actually found on accident looking for other stuff. Uh, it's a very difficult diagnosis to make. Hopefully, in your career, they'll all present this classically. 
Absolutely, Steve. Great points. I guess the most important thing is just to stay vigilant and keep it on your differential. Let's get back to George. Dissection is one of those zebras that we're supposed to think about, but oftentimes we may miss because we don't think about this diagnosis enough. But once we make the diagnosis of aortic dissection, our job is not done. Now we have to manage it, especially when they start to crash on you. You have to make some very critical actions in order to prevent these patients from having a bad outcome. The goal is to get these patients to the operating room as quickly as possible, but when their blood pressure starts to drop, the surgeon may be a little bit hesitant to take this patient to the operating room with a low blood pressure. The big first don't that you don't want to do in a patient who comes in with a dissection who all of a sudden drops their blood pressure is assume, oh, it's because I got that nicarapine drip up too high. I just need to start dialing it back. The pathophysiology for this disease is not that your drip is causing the problem. Obviously, these patients have a significant problem with afterload, and anything that we're doing is trying to prevent the propagation of that intimal flap into a worsening dissection. But when they drop their pressure, it is not the drip. The drip is not the problem. We all have talked a lot about ultrasound this course, and Haney and I and a lot of our colleagues love to use the ultrasound. And this is a scenario where your ultrasound is going to be your friend because it's going to help you make the diagnosis of what's potentially going on with this patient who's crashing in front of you. And the first thing that you're going to be looking for is tamponade. Tamponade is the thing that kills most patients with a type A dissection. These patients have a 54% mortality when they develop tamponade if they've had a type A dissection. When I was at the University of Maryland, I worked in the CTICU and there was this one surgeon that loved to give this talk every year and I'd heard it a billion times. And it was just like, they call the type A dissection because I want to be awoken in the middle of the night to tell me that the patient was there and I rolled my eyes every time. But the point was, is that the mortality rate for these patients is one to 2% each hour. That's pretty bad. So it really solidifies the fact that you got to suspect this disease, get your bedside ultrasound on the patient because of mortality is super duper high. All we're doing is temporizing. We had to get them to the OR. So next, George, you're going to talk about the really bad stuff that can happen when your patient has an aortic dissection. Now, when we think about dissection and how a patient manifests into having tamponade, it's really part of two potential pathophysiologies for how this occurs. The first one is that they frankly just rupture directly into the pericardium. And when that happens, these patients have what we quickly call sudden cardiac death. These patients are not patients that you're going to see in your emergency department under most circumstances. The other thing that happens sometimes in these patients, though, and these are the patients that you are more likely to see, is that they develop an effusion, usually due to a process across the intimal flap, where fluid goes across that intimal flap into the pericardium. And in that circumstance, these patients have a very precipitous drop in their blood pressure. So here George has talked about two ways that tamponade can present for patients with aortic dissection. The first way, you're probably never going to see because these patients will die in the scene. They basically have rupture across the aorta into the pericardial sac and they're going to die. The second way is probably the way you've been seeing patients who present tamponade. And that's when there's a tear in the inch that's dissecting into the flap. That dissection flap goes into the pericardium and these patients are slowly leaking into their pericardium, causing tamponade, and that's how these patients present. So when you see pericardial tamponade, it solidifies the fact that you have to be super vigilant about calling the surgeons and getting these people to the OR. So this is a really important point, and George is going to go through the pathophysiology about what happens when you intubate and provide positive pressure to a patient in obstructive shock. This is a very important point that you need to remember for tamponade, but also other forms of obstructive shock. 
Don't intubate these patients haphazardly. A lot of times we see very critically ill patients who come into the emergency department who are hypotensive and they look ill, they may not be maintaining their mental status, and we think to ourselves, this patient might need to be intubated. If you do that, and this patient is very quickly going to decompensate and likely die. The reason why this happens is because when they have a pericardial effusion, there's a vice grip surrounding the heart, not allowing there to be adequate cardiac output. When you intubate these patients, now you're adding in positive intrathoracic pressure, and all that's going to do is further constrict the heart, preventing any further cardiac output. You don't want to do this to the heart, especially in this patient population. What do you want to do? You want to RBI. Now, you're going to hear a little bit about RBI as we go through this, as well as other talks, and that is resuscitate before you intubate. Resuscitation before intubation, as we know, is critical in patients who come in who need to be intubated. I absolutely love this concept of resuscitate before you intubate, RBI, not RBF, RBI. And Steve, how do you RBI your patients? You got to optimize them. Do your rush exam and try to figure out what's going on. This patient, they probably need blood products to get their blood pressure up. They probably need some vasopressors as well. I love getting an A-line in if I have enough time. So getting that A-line in is going to give me second-to-second blood pressure monitoring. And in this patient especially, you want to look at your CT scan. And if one of the arms is dissected off, if blood's not getting to one of those arms, make sure you're not putting an A-line in a vessel that is part of the dissection. Absolutely love that. Let's go back and listen to George and hear how he evaluates his patients who are at risk for decompensation. We've all heard about using the shock index to decide which patients may need to be resuscitated. And we know that the shock index equation is the heart rate divided by the systolic blood pressure. And we want that heart rate over the systolic blood pressure to be high. What happens when it's low? And in circumstances with patients who have an aortic dissection with tamponade, we still want to resuscitate before we intubate. And the way that we're going to fix this is by doing ABI. ABI is not ankle brachial index. It actually stands for aspirate before you intubate. So when you see this, who tapped that? Oh, so I would definitely tap that. For those of you on the podcast, George is now showing a picture of pericardial tamponade. Then it's a doozy. But in the scenario with patients who have tamponade, we're a little bit hesitant to tap that. Why? There's some literature about that. And that literature says, don't empty the pericardium. This is the first paper that came out. This is the Isselbacher study. And this looked at the mortality rate in patients who had tamponade with a type A dissection who had a pericardiocentesis. And the mortality was abysmal. 75% of patients who had a pericardiocentesis of a pericardial effusion with tamponade from a type A dissection died. Now, that's three out of four, because it was three out of four patients. But in the same vein of that, that caused a lot of the literature to say, don't tap pericardial effusions with tamponade with type A dissection. But there's been some more recent literature that says otherwise. This is the first paper. This was Hayashi et al. They had 100% survivability in patients who had type A dissection with tamponade who got a pericardial synthesis. There's a second paper. This was published by Cruz et al. They had five out of six. Now, I really say they had six out of six because what happened with the sixth patient is the patient went into cardiac arrest, they diagnosed a pericardial effusion with tamponade, they did a pericardiocentesis, and the patient didn't come back to life. I don't think that really counts. It wasn't the pericardiocentesis that killed the patient, it was the fact that they went into tamponade and they couldn't resuscitate them. But they said five out of six, so we're going to leave it alone. And then this is the most recent paper. This was the Nakai study. This looked at 49 patients who all had pericardiocentesis after dissection, 
And again, they had 100% survivability. So when you look at these papers and compare them to the Isselbacker study, what is the big difference between their research and Isselbacker's research? And it was one thing, how much they pulled off. The Isselbacker study, they took off all of the fluid from pericardial slack. And in the other three papers, they just did something called CPD, which stands for controlled pericardial drainage. Controlled pericardial drainage involves not emptying the pericardium, but pulling off five, 10 mLs to reestablish hemodynamics, and then put your hands in your pocket and slowly back away from the patient. Do no harm. So this is a really important point. There's still teachings out there that say you never drain a pericardial fusion with a type A dissection. But as George points out, it's necessary and safe in patients when they're crashing, but take out just enough to get them back and then stop. Five to 10 mLs do not fully drain the pericardial effusion. And this is the same thing in trauma too, because if you drain too much fluid off of that space, what happens is wherever that rent in the vascular space is, you're allowing it to now fill up again. And so if you drain the whole thing, it's just going to keep filling, drain, filling, filling. The best thing to do is allow the heart to refill again by pulling off just enough fluid, but not enough to relieve the pressure on that toilet piece of intima. Let's go back to George and listen to how he does that procedure. How do I do this? I like to use ultrasound-guided pericardiocentesis, and I use the parasternal long view. So I put this on the chest, and I actually can watch the needle go into the pericardial sac while under ultrasound guidance. Put a little guide wire in, put the catheter in, and I'm done. It's a very easy procedure to do, and it's quick and fast and much less cumbersome than doing the subzyphoid approach where you may or may not get it into the pericardial sac. You can even tell your critical care transport team, hey, this patient has an effusion. I'm draining off some fluid. So while in transport, if the patient's blood pressure starts to tank, just take a syringe, pull off 5 to 10 mLs, reestablish their hemodynamics, and most critical care transport teams are comfortable with this. The second thing you're looking for, so you've got your ultrasound, you've looked at the heart, there's no pericardial effusion. The next thing you want to make sure you're not missing is cardiogenic shock. And there's two ways these patients can manifest cardiogenic shock. The antimal flap can go across the coronary vessels, causing there to be a massive myocardial ischemia and infarction. Subsequently, the patient goes into cardiogenic shock from a decreased EF. Or more commonly, what you're going to see in a very precipitous drop in their blood pressure is the patient develops an aortic root dilatation. So they develop aortic regurgitation, which causes them to develop pulmonary edema and subsequent hypotension. So George is saying that you've cleared out the pericardium as being a cause of the shock because you drained the effusion or you reduced it to the point where it's better. And now you have to focus on other things that are going on. That's why ultrasound is so helpful. You're going to look at the LV and the RV to see if there's any decreased function. Maybe there's ischemia that's happened or is the problem that the aortic valve root has gotten so big that there's severe aortic regurgitation also causing shock. Steve, how are your bedside aortic valve replacement skills in the emergency department? <laughs> Phenomenal. Pop it in, mm. easy. But if I've rolled out the other stuff, this just reinforces the urgency of getting them to a surgeon. Let's go back to George, and he's going to show us how to make this diagnosis. So how are we going to diagnose this? A clue might be that they just have refractory tachycardia. So you started the esmolol drip, you started the nicardipine drip, and the esmolol drip, for some reason, despite continuing to titrate up, just continues to keep their heart rate elevated, high 90s, 100s, 110s, 120s, and you're continuing to titrate up and things are not going in the direction that you're wanting to. The heart is trying to maintain cardiac output. 
And the way it's doing that is by increasing the heart rate. So that's how it's trying to keep the cardiac output up. So in that circumstance, get your ultrasound because you want to make this diagnosis. So what are you looking at? You're going to do again, parasternal long. You're going to take a quick peek at the aortic root. If it's big, and if you know how to use color Doppler flow, now I'm not a, a ultrasound aficionado. I can put the ultrasound on the chest and take a look and say, yep, that looks right. Or nope, that doesn't look right. But do I know how to use color Doppler flow? A little bit, tiny little bit. You can put color Doppler flow and see if there's any aortic regurg. But if that aortic root is very large, the likelihood is they're going to have some aortic regurgitation and that's going to be your cause. So what do you do in this scenario? Don't focus on the heart rate control. In this circumstance, your primary goal is going to be maintaining that systolic blood pressure. And you may even have to start pressors on these patients to prevent them from developing profound hypotension and subsequent cardiac arrest. Man, see, this is really advanced stuff that George's talking about. And I don't want anyone to think that you should be making this diagnosis without the use of an ultrasound. It is so vital in your evaluation. Maybe use a little bit of Esmol to slow them down, promote some cardiac filling. And this is only in the short term to treat their shock. Again, just reinforcing, don't waste time. If the OR is ready, go to the OR. Call your surgeon, get this patient to the OR. We've got to do everything we can to temporize this patient, to buy them time till they get to the OR. But ultimately, the OR is what's going to fix them. Beautifully said. And look, George provides a great summary here. So let's listen in and hear him encapsulate this whole talk in just a few points. So the big take-home pearls that I want you to take from this talk. Number one, focus on using the ultrasound to look for these aortic dissection complications. Look for dissection with tamponade, look for dissection with cardiogenic shock. Number two, any patient who you're thinking about intubating, resuscitate before you intubate. And in the case of tamponade, think about looking at the heart, making sure there's tamponade present and not intubating those patients. You may have to do aspiration first before you intubate, which in that scenario, controlled pericardial drainage. Remove just enough fluid to reestablish hemodynamics and then put your hands in your pocket and back away. And then lastly, look for cardiogenic shock. No tamponade, look for cardiogenic shock, look at that aortic root. And if there is aortic regurgitation, focus primarily on blood pressure control and not on heart rate control. Steve, that was a really awesome summary by George. The whole talk was amazing. I learned a lot. I learned about the people who we never see in the department, the people who basically dissect all the way through the aorta, they come in dead if they come in at all. And then of course, to take off just little bits of volume for that person who is hemodynamically unstable to allow better filling of that heart. How about you? Yeah, I agree. I love this talk because I think we intuitively knew when the patient crashed, we had to drain that fluid. Well, we always felt guilty. So I love that George gives us permission, if you will, with evidence that if your patient is crashing, it's okay to take a little bit of fluid out of that pericardium. Fantastic. If you want to hear the whole talk in its entirety or any of the other talks that George gave or any of the Resus X Factors gave, head over to resusx.com and sign up for the Resus X Reset Conference you will find a ton of great education on there. And you can also earn some CME credits. Steve, thanks for being on today. And will you come back and do some more episodes with me? For sure, man. It was fun. Take care. Thanks.